Oh, God. What a nightmare. It really is. It is very... Like, I would never wish, like, AIDS on anyone. Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely like, not. Like, the slow deterioration of one's being does not sound like a fun way to go. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into a little bit about, like, the details when it first started propping up about, like, how it went untreated and what happened. Oh, God. I just, I don't want it. Doesn't sound fun. You know what? I'll, if I may be so bold. <laughs> same. <laughs> I also. Wow, brave. At, we're we're a very anti-AIDS uh, podcast. I will say that against the virus. I was going to say not the not the people the who people contract who have it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Could you imagine just like picket <laughs> signs, like just a normal person just walking around like what the hell? We just sabotage our entire podcasting <laughs> history for just by giving it a very strong anti-AIDS stance at the end. Isn't that kind of crazy? One hundred thirty-five episodes, and then we now? finally. Finally said something to get ourselves canceled. <laughs> I know I've said the entire <laughs> Lizzie Borden episode is yeah. plenty to get. Maybe uh, not canceled, but like, all right, I'm turning this off. Speaking of turning it off, welcome to the Gems of History podcast, everybody. <laughs> Spe- <laughs> Speaking of turning it off, welcome to the majority of my dating life. <laughs> <laughs> but you found the one yeah, that pretty- stuck around. Yeah, thank God. That's all that matters. I'm Jacob Shop the host of the Gems of History, with my co-host, Evan Roosh. Yo, yo, yo. How you doing, feller? We're doing good. It's holiday season is in full swing, and we have a very Thanksgiving-like topic for <laughs> post-holiday. Sure. To start your Monday. Um, we will be talking about things getting stuffed, that is for sure. Yep, stuffed. I got nothing else. I don't think there's the only any, pun I had yeah, out of that. That's all the, what, the gravied? I don't think... <laughs> That, that's not that's baby not anything. Grief. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, this episode's not going to be fun. It's mostly upsetting and sad. It's uh you, the usual listener suggested episode, right? Like <laughs> they it is. They've always come up with some hot topics. Outside of like history of cats. That one is fun. History of cats, Day of the Dead was also a fun that one, one just to learn more fun. about another culture. But uh we also had also had uh, the Japanese uh, war camps. Yes, in World War Two, and now we're talking about a global epidemic that's still going on. <laughs> so, just like COVID, we just kind of pushed it away. Like it's not really that big of a deal anymore. We don't need to worry, worry about it. It's it's being handled, guys. Yes, <laughs> and it's being handled by the private health industry, which is always a good place to put all the problems. Private, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. We're talking about the HIV AIDS epidemic today. This was a listener episode, the last listener episode of the Gems of History podcast. So, what a fun one to go out on, huh? You know what? We are going out with a bang. We are indeed. But as Evan mentioned, it's the holidays. Uh, by the time this comes out, Thanksgiving and stuff will have already happened. But mm-hmm. we're recording before that because we have obviously busy schedules with the holidays coming up. So, yeah. Evan, what are you thankful for? I'm very thankful for a great friend and co-host for the past three years at this point. The man sitting across from me from the table. Very thankful for you and all the work that you've put in the last, again, three years. By the time we're done wrapping this up, probably 140 episodes. So, 
thankful for you and your friendship. You've gotten real good at pandering. Do you think anyone's crying? Or do you think people are booing? <laughs> They're probably like, gosh, we've heard this already. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you just go cry about it? <laughs> Why don't you guys just hug each other once? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but thank you. Not during this episode. That. We're not hugging during this episode. Yeah. <laughs> no skin to skin contact for the next week, Mm-mm. at least. That's very sweet, Evan. Thank you. What about you? What are you thankful for? And he's gonna be you're about to be like literally everyone else in my <laughs> life besides you. Um I am thankful that I am going to sleep a lot over this extended weekend. Oh, that my is gosh, honestly man. like all I've been thinking about is just eating and sleeping. So I'm very excited about that. What I'm not thankful for is the fact that like I've spent three separate times dedicated to getting my lawn clean of leaves just for more leaves to fall in it literally within hours. And it's just, yeah, it's the worst. Leaves are ruining my life. And for us, like for Midwestern people, it sucks because it gets right on the border of when we're going to get snow. And then it's just like, do I leave them? Or do I try and tackle this problem? Right. So you're raking leaves in 30 degree weather. <laughs> yeah. And it usually is very like sleety too yep. to start. Like it was very sleety today. Oh, look, we're talking about the weather. <laughs> the but le- like leaves. the leaves just get so mushy and gross and then they stick to the sidewalk. And they're heavy. They are so heavy. Like oh the leaf gosh. bags I have outside right now are probably a good fit. This pounds. is the most uncle conversation I think we've ever had on the show. Well, do we have the mustache going? So. <laughs> That's true. We do both have the mustache going. Yeah, I expect to see that all through. Well, we always do uh, Friendsgiving, but I expect to see that for Friendsgiving and your Thanksgiving oh, family photos. Absolutely. You can count on that. Oh, man, we are just really trying to avoid getting into this one, aren't we? <laughs> I won't say dive right in because I, I don't want to <laughs> All right, well, dive at least. We should cover it. It's time to talk about the HIV AIDS epidemic. It is, uh, as I mentioned, it's not a fun ride, but we're going we're gonna to go all the way back because to get to the start of the HIV AIDS epidemic, we got to backtrack all the way to Africa before all of the good old colonial powers came in and made it worse back when the rains were in africa that that they were mm-hmm. you blessed those rains they were blessed rains do you think that the whites came and just, just to africa just for the blessed rains <laughs> they're just like, they heard myths and tales of the blessed that, rains it's like the record scratch and then the rain just stops <laughs> <laughs> they're here when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So since ancient times, the various locales of Africa have exchanged hands a lot, like from the Crusades and stuff even, like that's kind of where stigmatization or like all of that area of the world kind of got stigmatized by white people saying, oh, we, this is ours. We can take that. So since then, there's been a lot of European colonizers that have tried to insert their hands into Africa, but it just really wasn't profitable for a long time. So it never really got too bad and kind of avoided major colonial expansion for a long time. 
But after a while, America was eventually colonized, and the exploitation of various African tribes kind of began alongside that, because the Atlantic slave trade took off in rapid succession after America was formally colonized, and the pilgrims and all of those people came over. And this became the largest transport of slaves in world history. Yeah, I'll never forget distinctly seeing a graphic, just learning about colonialism and what was happening in the world at this time. And it was a triangle graph of like the goods that were shipped from each place. Like America was shipping over raw materials such as like lumber, cotton, etc. Like those raw materials yeah. were going to England and Europe. Europe was making like the fine goods with it, like the end product that they could really upsell. And then the final one, the arrow pointing to Africa going over to America. So you can kind of see like free workforce essentially going to harvest these relatively cheap materials to then be sold for extreme profit in Europe. In the motherland. In the motherland, yes. Yeah. It's, Very distinct in my mind. I can picture it right now. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, I mean, it. this obviously caused suffering for the people being traded, but it also worked to depopulate the African continent in general. And it stole a lot of the young, a lot of the productive members of their respective societies. It derailed the political and economic development of Africa as a whole. It was just a devastating process for the continent of Africa as a whole. Yeah. I mean, a lot of you know, working age people were taken from from these villages, leaving like the elderly, the young, the too young to do anything, which leaves them extremely vulnerable in terms of like collecting resources to survive, but also from other tribes or other enemies that they have. You know, it's a very, very sick thing to think about. Yeah. And it's, if you've never learned anything really about the African, the the Atlantic slave trade, a lot of the times it was like various tribes taking over another tribe and then yeah. shipping those strong warriors that they just defeated off to be slaves. Yep. So you're getting rid of competition and you're also enhancing your own power hold in the area that you live in. And then once the white people come, they're paying you for it. It's So you have way more incentive to keep going and doing what you're doing. What a crazy, crazy, crazy evil cycle that is right man. well and then also back home in like europe where these slaves are where the profits are really being seen from this whole slave trade the people there are really not working because the jobs are all being taken by slaves now so right. you have all these people that need something to do and they eventually overcrowd certain areas of the cities and then they move over to africa and set up colonies there because it's right. just like well, now we can do this and we can rule over our own little sector of the world. Yeah. Not good. It is crazy that colonialism was really a product, not entirely, but partly enhanced just by overcrowding. Yeah. It's like, man, I can't find anything to do here. I should go where there's just about no other people that look like me and just kind of take over things there. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're the first ones, you kind of set the rules. You really have a good chance. Yeah. So not only did this devastate the societies and like the structure of these societies in Africa, but it also solidified that kind of dominant 
to subservient relationship between Europeans and non-Europeans, while the colonizers were the ones reaping all of the rewards for pretty much no work. Right. Yeah. I mean, even in the slave trade, like they were purchasing people for next to nothing from other tribes who I mean, had no money. Right. Know, exactly. European money. Yeah. To buy like more goods and I mean, enhanced weapons, etc. So it's a economic system created by Europeans to benefit Europeans and Europeans only. Trickle down, right? Ah, yes. <laughs> it trickled <laughs> down from like, us to us. Yeah, Reaganomics, <laughs> except it's like <laughs> like King George Omics or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> King Leopold the Second Omics. Yes. Really rolls off the tongue. So greed, racism, and national pride were the three main factors as to what pushed all of these European powers to move into this market as quickly as possible. And once slavery ended all over, because the reasoning for it was pretty much just because it became inefficient due to the Industrial Revolution. A lot mm-hmm. of that labor could be transferred into a factory, and then you can make children do it yes. instead of, instead of uh, enslaved African people. But the colonial outlooks of European powers shifted from owning the people of Africa to just owning the land in Africa that the people lived on. Yes. Yeah, it definitely switched to... It's also crazy because a lot of people are like, how did it take so long for slavery to end worldwide? It's like, just because new technology was invented, it really wasn't like a moral oh, no. aha moment. It really was just the new technology and, oh, we can have a machine and, like the point you just made, a child do this. Yeah. And, and pay them little amounts. And when I say that slavery ended, it, yeah. like obviously it didn't end. We're, they just controlled yes. the entire land of Africa instead of controlling individual people. Right. Yeah. It, it just transferred to a grander scheme. And once that kind of happened... Capitalism and racism expanded by force first to take the land away from the people of these diminished African nations. So first by force, and then after they secured that land, European powers controlled that land through cheaper free labor, similar to how the slaves were treated. And they capitalized on the new markets that the land itself offered, like as we come to know now, blood diamonds or Mm -hmm. rubber was a huge export out of the African uh, little villages and eventually the hope of the native African peoples diminished as they're pretty much just held captive in their own land but control by force only lasts so long so to kind of avoid any conflict with that the new controlling powers installed local agents who were native people that, that were educated at colonial schools and then would work underneath these new colonizers as subordinates but they got paid better they had control over people mm-hmm. to, you give people power and once they get that power they're going to be on your side more often than not right it's almost like installing like a shadow government yeah or like a puppet government exactly. in a way and as so long as you keep that one guy happy, mm-hmm. then he'll do whatever you say. By 1884, European countries claimed sovereignty over most of Africa through what they called the Berlin Conference. But that basically was just a meeting to decide which European powers get part, what parts of the country that they didn't own, but now are piecing out to each other. And then private companies bought rights to control areas that the different governments owned and the resources that they contained. 
Companies began to work heavily in the Songha River Basin, where brutal and violent exploitation of the population there to extract rubber to extract rubber and ivory eventually inspired books that became bestsellers like Heart of Darkness. And I've never read Heart of Darkness, but if it's based on this guy known as King Leopold II, who was a Belgian king in the Congo area of Africa. And based on what I've read about this guy, this book is probably very upsetting. Yeah, I can't imagine a book with that type of topic is uh, you know, a happy-go-lucky book. Yeah. You're not smiling at any point. But these pop culture sort of exposés, I guess you could call it, actually condemned King Leopold by other European powers because of how bad he was being in yeah. the Congo. So if you're getting condemned by other col- like other colonial powers for how bad you're treating the people that you run, whew. yeah, the British and the French were, and the Germans are like, we would never. <laughs> Not to this extent, at right. least. Under King Leopold II, orphaned children would be kidnapped and taken to what were known as child colonies, where they were worked or they were trained as soldiers, and estimates range near a 50% mortality rate for the Mm. children that were kidnapped and taken to these places. Uh, Workers would regularly experience their friends and family, regardless of age, getting their hands or feet amputated for not producing enough labor, and... Just overall, it was a very brutal picture of what colonialism was doing to people in Africa. Yeah, it's a very brutal system. And also, who had the idea of this person isn't producing enough, let's take away a hand? Right. Like, that's the crazy, crazy concept. It's so dumb. But this, in my opinion, it's there's no direct ties that prove this, but this, like, brutal treatment and amputation of people's limbs and stuff, I believe is one of the big contributing factors as to why this disease probably originally started spreading, Mm -hmm. because that's a lot of blood that's just being spilled and moved around between different areas. So Right. These aren't hygienic places. No. Like, there's just flowing blood that can get anywhere, like even to like drinking sources or water sources. But nevertheless, colonialism pushed on. Uh, New infrastructure under these colonial powers linked previously unconnected areas of the country of Africa, or of the continent of Africa, with steamboats transporting goods as well as people into new towns. Along the Sangha River, trading centers and colonial outposts began to pop up, and two towns in particular are where our focus eventually takes us for our topic today, which are known as Leopoldville, now known as Kinshasa, and Brazzaville. These towns attracted Africans from across the equatorial belt of Africa, if you don't know what that means, just like the the different various locales that are centered around the equator that crosses through Africa. Uh, a lot of the Africans from that area moved into these two towns, and the culture and creative energies of the towns turned them into lively venues for things like music and social interaction, but that also led to more relationships and opportunities for sex. And it seems that this is most likely where the disease we now know as HIV or AIDS began. While the epidemic started its spread through the United States in the 1980s, the first confirmed cases were found decades before in Africa. 
While we can trace a case back to a stool sample from 1959 in Kinshasa, traces in different apes and chimpanzees likely set the origin of the disease somewhere in the beginning years of the 20th century. Yes, that is very interesting that the first human case that we were able to track, right, was that 1959, but it, it, it does go back quite a long time to primates. Right. And I read it like a very over my head, like writing up of how, right. how this spread. It was very scientific and I didn't understand most of it. Right. But yeah, it talks about how long this various strains of HIV, what we now know, how it long it probably manifested in apes and different mm-hmm. uh, simians before it transferred to us. Like, a long time, this thing was kind of just sitting dormant, waiting for an opportunity to be able to infect a new host. Right, yeah. I mean, again, I'll never be able to understand and explain how germs work. Yeah. Or the complexities of the human body, or just anything to do with cells. But from what you just said, and the knowledge, a little bit of knowledge that you have, or that I have, it does take a while for something like this to manifest. Like it takes like centuries almost. Oh yeah, to get to the point where it's able to adapt and then infect like a human host. Yep, it can run rampant in an animal species for a very long time before deciding like I want a new body. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I want some new meat. So after all those years of waiting, it finally kind of snuck into the human realm at the beginning of the 20th century in the early 1900s. So it's, as I mentioned, a mutated form of a virus that is found in apes, and it can be found in multiple varieties of chimps and monkeys, and eventually one of those monkeys or chimp species that had this disease within it transferred it to humans through likely a bushmeat trading area, which bushmeat is just like monkey or ape meat that is sold as food. Right. Obviously, that's a lot of blood that's going to be transferred. And that's where I mentioned like the amputations and stuff. Because mm-hmm. if you're being forced to go back to work on this bushmeat trade after you just had a limb cut off, you're probably still exposed. It's not completely healed up at that point. And it's just a very easy way for germs to spread from blood to blood contact. Yeah, it like there truly is a million ways that this could have happened. And it most likely is not like the pop let's call it the pop culture way that people say that AIDS started where like someone had sex with a monkey. Yeah. Like that didn't happen. No, let's just rule that out right I mean, now. Well, maybe it did. I'm like, giving the, it the very slim chance. I guess there shouldn't, I shouldn't talk in absolutes. I'm not a Sith Lord, but there's probably like a less than 0.1% yeah. chance. I'm assuming it's the transference of blood or someone like drank it or in, or yeah. drank blood, just undercooked meat, like something more logical than having intercourse with an animal. Yeah, because working in these jungles and stuff where these monkeys live, you're going to get scrapes and cuts, and it's going right. to be very easy for that to come in contact with a monkey that you just slaughtered. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but after it infected one of the human hosts that it got a hold of, heterosexual sex and other blood-to-blood contact eventually helped to spread this disease. And if you know anything about HIV or AIDS, it's very nefarious the way that it works because once it infects a victim, it patiently waits inside the body to show itself for years before someone can even know they're infected. Mm. 
six to 10 years is what I read is like a normal incubation period before symptoms really start to show. So that's a long time for this to start spreading before anyone even knows that they're sick. That's crazy. An entire decade can can go by. Like how much life, we talk about this all the time, how much life has gone past like the last three years of us doing this show. Imagine 10 years and then you're like, I'm feeling very weak. Yeah. My body is turning inside out. While the situation in colonial Africa served as kind of a test tube for spreading and magnifying the extents of what is now known as HIV-1, which is it's kind of the designation for the more infectious version of HIV or AIDS, which is what we are commonly seeing nowadays. The end of colonialization and Cold War tension in Africa served as another way for the disease to spread outside of Africa. By the 1960s, many African countries began to win their independence from the colonial powers of the Europeans. And this was good in a way, but it didn't mean that they were always in a promising spot after this happened. Many of these nations became battlefields for Cold War struggles between the United States and the Soviet Union, specifically in the area of the Congo, which is where a lot of the virus's roots can be traced back to. So after King Leopold was deposed due to the criticism of his rule, Belgium as a country took over that area. And after a while, the Congo's independence got really rushed by the 1960s. There was just all these other nations were vying for their own independence and Belgium pretty much just didn't have the resources to maintain it anymore. And it just kind of got expedited. Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting that you never think about Africa as one of the, uh, call it proxy states that we use for the cold war like you completely forget oh yeah like yep also happened there everywhere yeah the prime minister who took over the congo whose name was patrice lumumba got stuck with one of the con he got i say got stuck but he was in one of the congo's most resource rich provinces Mm -hmm. and at the time of his rule shortly after that really resource-rich province that was part of the Congo seceded from the Congo. Oh, and I'll do it. Fun fact, this area is where we got a lot of our uranium for the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. So very resource-rich. Yes. It's, wow. So they broke off from Congo as a whole, or the Free Congolese, I, I think it was like the Free Congolese Nations, something mm-hmm. like that. And When this happened, a type of civil war broke out, during which Lumumba was assassinated, and the UN Secretary General, whose name was Dag Hammarskjöld, was shot down in his airplane. And then, after that, Belgian and UN troops occupied the country. The next head of the Congo was named Joseph Mobutu, who remained a Cold War ally of the United States. So, it's very easy to see the lines where the power went from free power to a shift back to being kind of a proxy state of the United States. Yeah. But the result of colonialism and the subsequent conflict was that a lack of people in the country had any type of professional experience or education in any field. Mm -hmm. So this pushed the United Nations to solve this problem by recruiting teachers and doctors from outside the country to work in the Congo. And these professionals came from Belgium and Haiti primarily, but that meant that thousands of people were now coming into contact with carriers of HIV in these Congolese nations. 
As these imported workers began to return home, HIV spread into Haiti and other areas across the Atlantic. And in addition, countries like Angola also endured long-lasting struggles and civil unrest into the 70s and 80s, which pushed Fidel Castro to commit support to the Angolan liberation movement, sending tens of thousands of Cuban soldiers and aid workers and doctors to Angola between the 1960s and the 1990s. Once Cuban and Angolan forces beat the South African Defense Force in 1988, the independence of Namibia, Nelson Mandela's freedom, and the end of apartheid followed shortly after, which are all good things. While their cause was successful, many of the Cubans who were fighting in these areas returned home with HIV. Without even knowing it. Yeah, and from these instances, it's just the disease spread like a wildfire across the entire world. It's very important to realize that with this disease, there's so much, it's, it's journey, if you want to call it that, definitely has a lot to do with like the socioeconomic and political activities that are happening. Oh, yeah. Like Castro sending tens of thousands of troops over yeah, there exactly. to Africa. Like, I never even knew that happened before this. Right. Like, there's so much context to garner from just doing research like this, like AIDS spread because of political things happening. Oh yeah. It wasn't just someone had intercourse again with a monkey yeah. and then like it snowballed from there. Like, no, there's so much that goes into a disease like this, an epidemic like happening like this, which is absolutely crazy. Yeah. And like, like context is key. Yeah. So, when I started all the way back in Africa, I'm sure you guys were kind of wondering where it was all going, but that's where it leads to. Like, yeah. you get the slave trade that leads into colonialism in Africa, and then once they all get their freedom, then they're all fighting for independence, and it just kind of spreads when their allies show up from other parts, other parts of the world. So, yeah, it's very, it's a very easy line to track after a while. Mm-hmm. So like I said earlier, eventually the date of the AIDS epidemic in the United States is set at 1981, but doctors have now found a number of unexplained medical cases in the West from as early as the 60s or 70s. And an evolutionary biologist from the University of Arizona named Michael Warobe placed the jump of HIV into the United States at probably 1970 or 1971. So a full decade or more before it was officially recognized, Mm -hmm. suggesting that the true mutation stronghold for the disease ended up being in New York City, not San Francisco, as was previously thought. Because, as we'll get to, that's where the large homosexual population resided at the time. Right. The LGBTQ population gets blamed for a majority of this. Oh, yeah. Which, like, I'll also have some stats like it. It, it doesn't get, they were scapegoated. It doesn't get good <laughs> yeah. at any point. The disease was almost certainly carried into the United States from the Caribbean in places like Haiti and the surrounding nations after they got infected. But that's not to blame those countries for bringing it to the U.S., obviously, because while 1981 isn't the origin date of the virus in the country, it is the first time when medical professionals realized that there was something unique about, in this case, a few specific cases of unusual pneumonia that popped up Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And like I said, I'm not saying that to blame Haiti for bringing it to the U.S. Nobody knew what this was. Like, nobody even knew that there was a new disease. Yeah, you can't really blame a country for for diseases. And like, no no one even knows that it's 
being spread. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know that you're infected and you don't know you're spreading it, how can you be blamed for it? Right. June of 1981 saw a release from the Center for Disease Control's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report that set off alarm bells for some physicians who had seen similar cases to the pneumonia cases in Los Angeles in their own patients. These instances saw people's immune systems completely failing and leaving them extremely susceptible to infections from otherwise harmless illnesses that normal people like you or me could deal with any other day. But since nobody knew what HIV was yet, these cases got misdiagnosed as rare pneumonia or Kaposi sarcoma, which is a disease that finds cancer cells in the skin and mucous membranes in the gastrointestinal system. So I didn't know what that was, so I wanted to make sure that I explained what it was a little bit. That's just imagine being the doctor that is putting this all together. Like, this is rare ammonia. It has to be rare ammonia. We don't have a name for this disease yet. So it has to be this other thing that we do know. Turns out it's not. Not at it's all. It's just not. It, yeah. But because of this misdiagnosis, young people began to suffer extreme hardships as they live with this new disease because nobody knew how to deal with it. HIV began to rip through those that it infected. They would suffer from rashes, stomach issues, and other infections. Fungal infections would grow in their mouth and throats, making it difficult to swallow. Some of them lost their vision. Others developed dementia, and nobody knew what was happening or how to stop it. And slowly the infected turned into husks of their former selves, pretty much. But since the virus was popping up in the country's gay communities, many infected didn't want to seek treatment because the stigma against homosexuality was very strong at the time. And it didn't take long for the spreading HIV infections to be associated directly to the LGBTQ community, with it being labeled as a, quote, gay cancer, and then being officially labeled as gay-related immune deficiency disorder, or GRID, in the United States. Religious people at the time said, God's revenge. <laughs> that was a real thing. Oh, yeah. It, uh, and then... I saw a, in one of the articles that I read, there was a poster from one of the African countries that gets hit really hard, and it was a child asking not to be sexually assaulted, because apparently there was a rumor going around. I don't know how it started. I didn't look into it, but there was a rumor that having or sexually assaulting a virgin was a way to cure the disease. So there was just an outbreak of sexual assaults against children in some of these nations because like that started spreading because no one knew what was going on paranoia and pandemonia are just the most like psychologically speaking the most probably leads to like the most heinous acts of humankind right like sexually assaulting a child because you think it might cure your disease like that's that's like witch doctor type stuff like that's like you consulted a witch (laughs) yeah like, well, uh, and then who starts that rumor, you know? like Oh, some asshole, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just none of it's good. Right. All of these minority groups are being targeted specifically, and it's just, it isn't fun for anybody. Oh, 100%. I mean, in the research for this upcoming episode, I had the, like, the unfortunate task of like really diving into like how, like you just mentioned, like minority groups uh, are really hit by this. And quite frankly, it is all about socioeconomic stability, 
if you will. I'll be calling it SES going forward. Just I have a few few points and stats to really dive in here. And all this information is from the American Psychological Association, uh, who did, or excuse me, reviewed multiple studies uh, over the last decade, ranging from 2014 to now, really diving into who still has this disease, because it has been a while since the outbreak or the epidemic first started. And, and truly, I mean, research on socioeconomic status and HIV suggests that a person's standing may affect his or her likelihood of contracting HIV and developing AIDS. And it is a key factor in determining the quality of life after they have the virus. So even when they do have it, the treatment options aren't great because of these socioeconomic factors. So, And this all starts like once they mislabel it as a quote-unquote gay disease. Yes, like they do label it as a gay disease. Like if you go to a gay nightclub, a gay bar, like you're 100% going to contract this HIV virus. But it's just the majority of the cases happened to the homeless, to uh, people who just straight up don't have money and who are living in poverty. And this direct quote from the APA, the American Psychological Association, I quote here, Living in poverty can result in food insufficiency, which can contribute to HIV-AIDS infection. Lacking food can result in transactional sex and power differences in sexual, sexual relationships, which can place an individual at a high risk of infection. So, we saw a lot of, we, at the beginning of the epidemic, a lot of the people who were contracting HIV and AIDS were sex workers. Like again, it was labeled as a you know a quote unquote gay virus for lack of a better way right. to say it. That's how it was portrayed at the time. Um, turns out it really was affecting minority groups and people of low income, um, which really resulted in affecting those groups the hardest. I mean, impoverished urban areas have now been found to have a prevalence of HIV that rates equivalent to many low-income countries. So that's saying in America, there's the same rate of HIV infection as like third-world countries as there are in American urban areas who are of low socioeconomic status, which in most cases are minority groups, such yeah. as well, minority groups. I'm right. not going to go into detail on, on that. But it, it all begins right away when they start labeling it in certain sectors of society and then those sectors of society that are already marginalized mm -hmm. can't seek proper outlets to get help they can't seek proper outlets to try and prevent it from spreading they can't seek outlets for proper sexual safety courses or proper sexual safety tools it's just it's a this is a trickle down for like everything that eventually becomes part of why HIV and AIDS is such a bad epidemic. 100%. I mean, it takes money to get treated for things, to pay for sexual protection like condoms or anything else. So if you don't have the ability to access these essential health functions, you are at a very high risk of this. And this is one stat that I found extremely interesting. And studies, this is again from the APA, I quote here, 
Studies of urban health have found that factors such as the level of poverty and unemployment, vacant buildings, and high crime rates are all associated with an increased risk of HIV infection. Because again, like we talked about before, I mean, sometimes sex is transactional, and in high crime areas, it just happens to be more prevalent of HIV. So, what I'm trying to say is the socioeconomic factors are the real contributors to the spread of HIV and AIDS, yet it was labeled like. God, like I mentioned before, a true saying, like, this is God's revenge against the yeah. homosexuals, which is crazy to say if you're a religious person, but I digress. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like, there's just so much more that goes into it, and you need the additional context of if you don't have money to get treated, you can't get treated, you can't be identified as someone that has this disease, which doesn't show what symptoms for six to ten years. Yeah. Well, and then at the beginning, even if you do have the money, you are not going to a doctor because mm -hmm. they're going to look at you weird. Or right. like they're going to out you as being gay in a time when you're trying to hide that from people. You know, it's, it's just all around bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at, I mean, just about any disease, it always affects people of lower socioeconomic status yeah like even with covid like the oh yeah majority of the death cases were urban areas to quote the cdc and uh just minority groups yep who don't have the same access as as higher socioeconomic status populations yep Around the same time that they labeled it as grid or gay related immune deficiency it was also the same time that physicians began to draw a comparison to a similar disease being reported out of Africa that was popping up in heterosexual patients. And eventually, that stigma that was attached to the epidemic tapered off, and the CDC officially named the disease Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, in September of 1982. But for that first year, pretty much just targeting groups of individuals. Right, like that's a whole year of your life that you're very much stigmatized as a carrier of this deadly disease just for, you know, who you find interest in. Yeah, just living your own life. Right. <laughs> Naming the disease a different thing was a good step for diagnosing people correctly, but it was still hard for medical professionals at the time to find a cause for where the virus is coming from. Even more concerning, there was no cure that was working. With so much ambiguity about where the disease was originating, hemophiliacs continued to get blood donations from infected donors, and public fear began to spread about how anyone could get infected. Some believed that a sneeze or a used toilet seat could infect them, and it caused panic to spread, and it compacted the discrimination that the infected people were already facing. Yeah, the used toilet seat one is the, probably the craziest thing. Like, yeah. Just what your skin, what your butt touches. Right. 
legislation that was meant to help combat the spread of AIDS was hindered by conservative governments like that of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. So funding and outreach for infected individuals was severely lacking at the beginning. And it took three years from the initial detection to correctly identify the virus that was causing the disease. And there was no test available to see if you were infected until 1985. And while all that's good, there was still no cure. Mm-hmm. There still technically is no cure. That's four, excuse me, five years of just not knowing what's going on, like how to properly identify this. You're just seeing your friends dying. Yeah. Like falling apart as people. Yeah. Ugh, God, that's, I can't imagine. The later part of the 80s, though, was influential for the public view of AIDS because in 1985, actor Rock Hudson came out and publicly announced that he had AIDS and he was the first major public figure to do so. He unfortunately died later that same year, but before he did, he made sure to make a large donation to help start an AIDS research foundation. Two years later, in 1987, Princess Diana shook hands with an HIV-positive man, which at the time was pretty sensational because nobody knew how it spread. Right. And Princess Diana, good for her. Yeah, that's a big move. Once the 90s rolled around, prominent figures like Freddie Mercury had headlines when he passed away due to an AIDS-related illness, and eventually more and more big names came out as AIDS carriers, like basketball phenom Magic Johnson, tennis star Arthur Ashe, and these actions helped to shift the public perspective on the disease a bit and quelled a lot of that stigma around the disease and those who were already infected with it. It really is crazy that once Magic Johnson got diagnosed with it, it really came into the public's eye like, oh, it can happen to anyone, including like six-time NBA champion or three-time NBA champions. Yeah. Like it's not just like LGBTQ uh, community carrying this. Like, oh, it can happen to anyone. Right. Well, and then after he announces it, I'm sure all of the people that had played him in basketball in recent times were like... Oh, God. He had a tough time after. Yeah. Like, that's, a, that's a very interesting story that we could dive into, but he had a very, very tough time. I mean, he's the reason, not him specifically, but like this whole thing is like why you can't have any blood on a jersey in any sport. Yeah. Just to really put that in perspective. Like that just wasn't a thing beforehand. Before, right. Like he came out. Yeah. Uh, well, so while all of this is good steps in treating and kind of combating HIV and AIDS as an epidemic, healthcare still had a lot of catching up to do by the 1990s to make sure that they could combat this effectively. While AIDS spread and the number of victims grew, public sectors for healthcare and pharmaceuticals were becoming more and more privatized in the West, specifically in the United States. As governments gave control over to these private ownerships, it set conditions for foreign aid and created a global economy connection between AIDS research and prevention. People were forced to pay user fees to access education and healthcare, which ultimately hindered the control of HIV prevention and, at the end of the day, fanned the flames of the disease. As governments proved that they couldn't be trusted to help those at the center of the epidemic, gay men and their allies in the United States began to form their own protest groups outside of the government to rally for their own cause. These groups occupied the New York Stock Exchange, they threw ashes on the White House lawn, and they used other in-your-face tactics to try and shame officials and researchers into taking this seriously. Other groups at the same time were striving to take care of people living with AIDS, sticking up for those at risk when no one else was going to. 
So they pretty much just had to take the power into their own hands to help each other. And also just get the attention of people who are supposed to be protecting them, i.e. the government. Yeah. But, and this is the probably where the biggest step against the HIV prevention was, is just that they made it a money situation. Like, giving it yeah. to the private companies so that it's all about profit. Right. Putting a paywall, like having to pay user fees. Yeah. And like putting up a paywall just to get treated for a disease that you will have for the rest of your life. And this is where conspiracies and stuff start about, mm -hmm. like this or cancer, where it's like the government probably has a cure for this somewhere and they're just hiding it because it doesn't make them money to cure people, you know? Oh, like, 100%. All, all of the timing of it is just such a coincidence that it leads to thoughts like that. That's always been one of my big uh, conspiracy theories like there has to be a cure for just about every disease yeah there's just no money in curing diseases. exactly there's more money in treating than curing mm -hmm. as things raged in the united states africa continued to struggle with the outbreak of hiv where it all began it had spread to eastern and southern africa silently through the heterosexual communities eventually pooling with the highest rates of infection at the bottom of the country in the southernmost portions of Africa, upwards of 15% of the populations were testing HIV positive by the end of the 20th century. 15% is an unbelievable number for, for a disease. Almost a fifth of the population. <sighs> While Western countries continued to push the dilemma down the line until they were forced to address it, Africa continued to struggle on its own. Similar to the Western countries, non-governmental organizations took the lead and stepped in to fill what gaps they could, but they couldn't fill the need for drugs to treat the disease, and the middle-aged population was devastated across most of Africa. This forced orphans and grandparents to create their own improvised family and societal structures and pretty much keep the infrastructure of African countries from collapsing. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization was on their high horse after eradicating smallpox in 1979, but when AIDS popped up in the 80s, they were pulled back down to earth because the virus was challenging global healthcare and global sciences to come up with a cure and come up with a cure fast. They were, they were like, we're kind of hot right now. We just decimated, or excuse me, we just got rid of one unbelievably impactful disease. A new virus has entered the arena. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's John Cena because <laughs> <laughs> so, you can't see it for 6 to 10 years ah, got it similar to how COVID was tackled biologists and virologists around the world raced to find a way to combat HIV eventually discovering that the virus was beyond their current scientific consensus HIV is what is known as a retrovirus which doesn't follow the same pattern that other diseases do when they evolve and attack a body and since medical institutions didn't know how to deal with retroviruses at the time, treatment took even longer. The first partially effective answer was created in 1987, which is known as AZT. It slowed the effects of HIV, but was extremely expensive, and it was only available in Western countries. After enough trials, effective treatments were found to be a combination of therapies. Once they were finally pressed about it, scientists created a bevy of new drugs in a pretty short amount of time, and by the mid-1990s, infected patients could receive a cocktail of around three antiretroviral drugs, and their immune systems would return in a matter of weeks. Just insane. Having to take a cocktail of pills is very tough 
to stomach. It like is. this specific, I believe, has such like intense side effects on your body. Yeah. Like taking so many drugs just to get your immune system back. Like it truly is a devastating disease. But also it's like you had to be forced to create these drugs. And once you right. were forced, you came up with a combination of drugs that cured their immune system in a matter of weeks. Yeah. When they've been struggling and seeing their friends die for years. But then they can make money off of it. Yeah, exactly. That's why there's three, because that's more money. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when they made these, finally, these treatments for it, they were still too expensive for most people to afford. And private pharmaceutical companies owned the patents for the drugs, and they were in charge of setting the prices. Nowhere was this felt more than South Africa. Apartheid in South Africa created such a gap of inequality that HIV was nearly impossible to combat. And by the end of the 90s, more than 20% of South Africans were infected with the disease. Despite a democratic election taking place in 1994 and the fact that South Africa was one of the wealthiest economies on the continent, the average income of the country was still only $2,600. And antiviral. Wow. And HIV antiretroviral drugs cost $12,000 a year at the time. Yeah. So there's literally no possible way to get it. Yeah. Like, it's for being one of the wealthiest... This is where the gap in socioeconomic status is really shown harder than ever, Mm -hmm. is that it's one of the wealthiest economies in the continent of Africa, and the average income is still only $2,600 a year. I mean, it's also... Again, another stat from the APA, like once you have it and it's been identified, let's say you come out and say that you have it, roughly 55 to 65% of people with AIDS like get fired from their job. Like at the time of the epidemic, I should say, like they just lose their job and they can't find work. Like they're the unemployment rate among those with this disease is extremely high. I mean, even today, there's still that stigma of it. That you could catch it just by like tapping shoulders with someone yeah, that has it. Right. It's so sad. The South African government changed laws in the country in 1997 to help find more affordable pricing on drugs for people affected. But the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, also known as Pharma, threatened to sue the country over violations of intellectual property rights because they had patent protections on the drugs. At some point, how can the government should be like, we're going to actually ignore this lawsuit against us because we know it will be better for everyone. Yeah. At what point are you too openly evil to continue existing? Like, Oh, there's a lot of people going to hell. I know, like, how, do you, this one. how do you sue a country that has the highest density of a disease for trying to get cheap drugs? For trying to cure said disease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, how can you be that openly evil and continue to function? Can you imagine if, like, the people that invented Band-Aids came oh, out? Gosh. They're like, actually, mm-mm-mm. Or when they found that penicillin was, like, a miracle drug and they're just like, sorry. Whoops. <laughs> At the end of the day, the globalization of the economy around AIDS and the rules to protect those economic interests of these companies doomed millions of people in South Africa who needed those drugs. Eventually, pharma was forced to drop their lawsuit amidst growing criticism of a multi-billion dollar industry suing a country getting ravaged by a deadly disease, and South Africa was finally able to negotiate for a way to get antiretroviral drugs. 
After this, other foundations cropped up like the Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who helped offset drug costs and donate to help those affected by the epidemic. So it took a little over a decade, but finally people are taking it seriously and donating private money to help combat this. The people at Pharma are bastards. Yeah. I mean, just in Putting general, <laughs> the pharmaceutical production company people are, are bastards. But yeah, to be like, to just deny care to an entire nation is bonkers. Yeah. Just because, oh, we might not make as much money, says the billion, multi-billion dollar corporation. It's crazy, man. While globalization hindered HIV prevention early on, pharmaceutical advancements and systematic approaches to treatment have now made enormous strides in the field of HIV and AIDS prevention. By 1997, new drug combination therapies were marketed that cut the deaths from HIV nearly in half within the span of a year. Combination therapies can now be achieved through a single pill or a two-drug combo that was approved in 2012 as an effective preventative measure to protect those at risk from, of getting the disease. Patients who are afflicted with the disease today can stick to these treatments to keep their viral loads to undetectable levels, which means that the virus isn't transmissible in those people. Instead of being an epidemic, the disease is now kind of a chronic condition that has to be managed with access to proper treatments. These advancements pushed for a 90-90-90 goal in global HIV prevention and treatment. And this means that they pushed to have 90% of people living with HIV to know their status, 90% of those diagnosed with HIV to receive antiretroviral therapy, and 90% of those on the treatment to achieve viral suppression by 2020. Now, that was a lofty goal, and it wasn't entirely met but there were certain countries that were on track for that goal initially. So it's going way better than it was at the beginning. You definitely have to set lofty goals for this. Yeah. Just to drive it, really drive it home. But like 90, 90, 90, that's an unbelievable shooting rate. Like, yeah. just thinking of it in basketball terms. Oh, yeah. Like shooting percentage. <laughs> like two, like regular two point field goals, three point field goals, and free throws all at 90%. That's an, You're the best basketball player in the world. Right. That's a Hall of Famer. Like, oh, that's. <laughs> he owns the Hall of Famer. Right. That's, that's uh, Pablo Sanchez and just about any backyard, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> backyard sports game. What a stud. Today, global funding has shifted to maintain a level of prevention and treatment among those infected, and massive investments have helped lead the way in that. But that doesn't mean that it has stopped the spread everywhere. Eastern European and Central Asian countries still see a rise in numbers due to undiagnosed patients and the high possibility of spread due to those undiagnosed people. Since the onset of HIV, approximately 86 million people have been infected, and tens of millions have died due to AIDS-related causes since the beginning of the epidemic. Today, approximately 39 million people currently live with the disease, and the toughest part of combating the disease is the lack of access to available treatment in the countries that are hit the hardest. Evan kind of went over the reasons for that. These poorer countries are not only lacking in drug availability, but also food scarcity and other infectious diseases compound the disaster of what HIV has done to their communities. Mm -hmm. Although HIV testing has increased over time, about one in seven people infected are still unaware that they are infected. 
There have been significant declines in infection rates since the 90s, and 2022 saw the fewest new HIV infections since the 90s, but there are still about 1.3 million new infections a year. Still today, wow. With all the cutbacks and everything. Mm Mm-hmm. New information continues to come out about the disease as it continues to be studied, but until access to preventatives and testing is readily available in economically depressed areas, the disease will likely continue to infect more people every year. However, there are some positives along with all of this new research. For example, one study was able to clear the name of so-called patient zero of HIV, who was a man named Gayton Dugas who was harassed and vilified for the belief that he caused the disease to spread to thousands of people. And I read a really good article about how they were finally able to clear his name after he was single-handedly put as the face of why HIV was an epidemic. Being put as the face of AIDS is very tough. Yeah, like there is a news article from... 87, I want to say, where there was a notation on the the article that had an arrow pointed to him that said pervert. And it's like, just, I can't imagine how his life was affected. Not only the fact that he has HIV now, but he's also going out into public and being harassed by everybody. Being called a pervert in a newspaper. Yeah, it's... So they're finally able to clear his name, which is... Good for those who are still living that knew him. There have even been a few rare cases of people today who are deemed cured from the disease from stem cell transfusions and similar procedures to that. Like they were getting treated for a cancer or something similar and ultimately ended up getting cured of their HIV for years. Wow. In 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services announced a new goal to achieve 75% reduction of new infections by 2025 and a 90% drop by 2023. This could be aided by new potential vaccines that are undergoing clinical trials right now and hope to show success at preventing the spread of HIV, but the efficiency of these new tests remains to be seen, and it remains to be seen how those those vaccines are going to be disseminated to the areas that need them honestly right yeah i mean the goal for 2030 like 50 years roughly after it was officially labeled an epidemic like that's a long time to get to like this point to basically eradicate a disease right i mean you think of covid like we Mm -hmm. tackled that pretty well in a relatively short amount of time we really did nip that one in the bud yeah i'll say so i mean hopefully these vaccines prove to have high efficiency mm-hmm. rates and can be easily spread across these communities that really need them. But once again, it's all going to come down to the private sector. So I guess we'll see what happens. That's true. Private sector, as well as just education, like additional education about the disease. Even if there are vaccine, we saw with COVID, like vaccines were produced, people still had doubts about them or like, right. wouldn't take them. So, I mean, it all comes down to, I guess, the human condition, right? Like, yeah. are you going to trust this? Right. Well, I mean, it's crazy that the, like, drug cocktails that were initially mm-hmm. coming out caught on as well as they did, because, like, it's the same kind of concept. People don't know what these are, but if they're going to help, they're going to help. What a genius branding idea to call it a cocktail instead right. of, like, anything else. like <laughs> A cocktail of drugs. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... Uh, it's an ongoing problem. Uh, there's, as I mentioned, there's really no effective cure for it. Right. 
other than like the few instances of the people that got lucky enough that the stem cell the stem cell procedures that they went through dropped their viral loads to undetectable levels for an extended time until they passed away. But now that's a crazy thing to do. You think the doctors after that happened were like, "Do two for one"? What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is very manageable now. If you mm-hmm. are infected with HIV, as I mentioned, it's kind of just a chronic illness that we have to deal with. At this point, it's not as much of an epidemic as it once was. Right. But there's still new infections every year in the, in the millions. So we have a long way to go before this is properly tackled to an adequate level. But it's all going to come down to whether these companies want to give out their products for reasonable, pri- reasonable prices to the people that need them. So That's truly what, what it always comes down to. Right. Money, money, money. Money, money, money makes the world go round. So, yeah, if uh, you or someone you know is affected by this disease, hopefully they are getting the help that they need mm-hmm. and hopefully they can live a, a normal life outside of the fact that they have this disease. I mean, there's still a stigma attached to it, but mm-hmm. I mean, most people can live a relatively normal existence as long as they continue with their treatments and have the access to them. Right. To your point with the ongoing stigma, it is very prevalent. Like that stigma and idea that, and even still that it's a, uh, only affects the, like the gay community Yeah, is still very much alive in, in American society. Even in advertising, like you see yeah. the commercials for drugs and a lot of times it is homosexual couples. I never even, yeah, that is true. So it's very subtle, but I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a good way of marketing it, I guess. Yeah, but, that's, that's true. You know, but. Yeah. Still stigma attached to it. Yes, yeah, definitely. But if you want to continue the conversation with us about this episode or any of our episodes, you can find us on X at gems underscore history. Find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. I Pause. Do you think there's any way that someone can go back and just think about all the different combinations of our social medias that i've done throughout the year that'd be so fun if you're if someone can do that please be my guest a, a and, big like master cut of all of them right, together like a pie chart of like how many times has he said facebook first that would Patreon be amazing first. or like how many like how many times you've mentioned those medias in general and if you've missed them a certain number of times like how Which, much percentage they have the hit rate yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, basically, you can find us on just about any social media. Just search Gems of History Podcast, and we will be there. Yes. Uh, As I mentioned, this will be out after Thanksgiving has already occurred, but Mm -hmm. we hope you guys had a safe and happy holiday. Uh, You didn't do anything stupid on those holiday weekends, because it's one of the biggest bar weekends in the United States specifically. I don't know about Mm -hmm. the rest of the world, but... It also leads to a lot of dangerous activity by certain people of the communities. So yep. take care of each other. Make sure if, you, if you're going out, make sure you have a ride home and you're not grabbing those keys and taking yourself. Yes, it's 100% not worth it. Yes. but And, we hope- and also be careful deep frying your turkeys. If yes. You're doing that, cause that's one of my personal favorite things, watching these bad boys explode. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. I saw something today. It was like, I cook my turkey the old-fashioned way by making my mom do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I hope you guys all had a great time over the holiday weekend. We hope you had plenty of awkward conversations with relatives that you don't see all the time. 
and stay polished. <laughs>